If you appreciate Issues Etc., our 24-7 music and talk stations, and our daily verse-by-verse Bible study, The Word of the Lord Endures Forever, please include a bequest in your will or trust for these worldwide media resources. A bequest allows you to receive an estate tax charitable deduction and reduces the tax burden on your family. Ensure your children, grandchildren, and great-grandchildren the opportunity to listen by including a bequest in your will or trust for Issues Etc., Lutheran Public Radio, and the Word of the Lord endures forever. Sometimes from our children's minds and mouths come the most basic questions that give us an opportunity to teach about Christ and who He is. A question like, did Jesus get sick? Or did He have friends? Those are simple questions, but it allows us to explore what Scripture does tell us about our Savior. Welcome back to Issues Etc. I'm Todd Wilkin. It's time for Part 19 of our series, Kids Have Questions. Pastor Jonathan Connor joins us. He is pastor of Zion Lutheran Church in Manning, Iowa. Jonathan, welcome. Todd, it's great to be here. Thanks. We start with a series of questions from a listener. Troy says, we had the flu running through the entire family. And while caring for my sick 12-year-old this morning, he asked me three great questions that would be fantastic for Pastor Connor to feature on his series, starting with, did Jesus ever get sick as a boy? Yeah, wonderful question. And, you know, as you mentioned, he has a whole series of questions, maybe because they kind of build off each other. Maybe, Todd, go ahead and just ask the rest of his questions, because they, they're all they're all tied together. That'd be easier for me to kind of address them at once than trying to pick them apart. So go ahead and ask the rest of his questions. And, well, he says, then, when realizing he couldn't play with his friends today, he then asked, did Jesus have friends as a boy and play with them like I do? And he finally followed that question up with this dandy. If Jesus did have friends and they were playing, if one of them wanted to sin, like steal something, did Jesus stop them since he hates sin? Yeah. So what I love about this, and first, let me say to Troy, Troy, these are wonderful questions, right? And look, for your sake, Troy, I'm sorry that that you had flu going through the family. Hopefully everybody's better by now. Anyone who's had kids, you've been there, done that. I've been there, done that. It's not a fun time to go through flu. But I'm absolutely thrilled that your son asks you these questions. And tell your son that these are great questions. And I'm so, so impressed he's thinking these thoughts. So I really want to commend you, Troy, on for your home life, that you've enculturated this environment where these are the questions that your children are asking. I think that's wonderful. And parents, I hope for you who are listening that you're celebrating the questions that Troy's son asked. These are very thoughtful questions. These are exactly the sort of questions we want our kids to be asking on a regular basis. Just when life happens, these should be the sort of questions that naturally come up and that we talk about as a family. So I'm really, really happy that you're doing that in your family, Troy, and I'm really honored to have the opportunity maybe to offer some insights on this. So when it comes to answering these questions, you're probably aware, Troy, that Scripture has actually very little to say on the childhood of Jesus, right? And we basically get Jesus, you know, in his infancy narrative, then he comes back to Egypt from Nazareth as a very young child, and then pretty much nothing until age 12 when he shows up in the temple. And just as an aside here, this this is kind of maybe helpful to think about. This is a reality that moved some early apocryphal and Gnostic writers actually to try to fill in the gaps, because nature abhors a vacuum. 
One of these apocryphal pieces actually uh, was called the Infancy Gospel of Thomas. We don't know exactly when it was written, between the 2nd and the 4th century AD. It tells all sorts of fanciful and, and honestly outlandish stories about Jesus as a child. Basically, in those silent years between the visit of the Magi and, you know, when Jesus came back from Egypt and when he shows up in the temple at age 12. And if you read it, and the text is online, you can Google it and find it, uh, you can immediately see just how different it is from our four Gospels. For example, it does give you a few examples, uh, give you a flavor for the book. You have Jesus as a child. He's making clay pigeons on the Sabbath, right? And he gets called out on it. And then what he does then is he just makes them come alive. So just turn them into real birds and kind of, you know, he just averts the, the problem. You have him, this is, you know, talk about filling in the gap and it becomes fairly obvious that we're dealing with an apocryphal gospel. You have Jesus actually cursing children who've upset him for different reasons and they die because of it. Wow. All right. At one point, Joseph is so exasperated with Jesus because the community is fed up with Jesus. And Jesus promises, Dad, I'll hold my tongue. All right. But he takes this parting shot and he makes the people who are mad at him, uh, he makes them blind. And then you have Jesus at one time, he's playing on a roof with the neighborhood children. One of them falls off and dies, but Jesus jumps down and he brings him back to life. Uh, my favorite is this story about Joseph. So Jesus, his carpenter dad, he's cutting uh, lumber and he cuts one board too short. But, but Jesus comes over and he just stretches it out to the perfect length. And Joseph is overcome with joy because of it. Now, look, like I said, this is all made up because nature abhors a vacuum, right? So scripture is silent on these early years of Jesus. And these writers, they're, they're rushing in to fill in the gaps. But I bring this up for a couple reasons. One, to highlight that in some ways, we have to be comfortable with the silence of Scripture in a way that these apocryphal texts were not comfortable. And we have to acknowledge, in some ways, some uncertainty about Jesus's childhood. Now, that doesn't mean we can say nothing. So I think it's perfectly fine, even good, to imagine what it might have been like. And here's why. It is good to meditate on Jesus. Further, it's good to take what we know and use it to guide our imagination into what we don't. So here's what I'm saying. We don't think outside the book, so outside of Scripture. We don't do that. Okay, that's what these early apocryphal writings were doing, thinking outside the book. And that's no good. But we do let the book guide and direct our imagination. We let the book govern our imagination. So we know that Jesus grew up. We know he was a child. We talked about this briefly last time, Todd, with the question, was God a kid, right? So, uh, and we've highlighted the way that the hymn, Once in Royal David City, puts it. I think this is a helpful insight. It says, for he is our childhood pattern. Day by day, like us, he grew. He was little, weak, and helpless. Tears and smiles, like us, he knew. And he feels for all our sadness, and he shares in all our gladness. So, look what's happening here, okay? So, him is taking what we know about Jesus, and then letting it guide our meditation on his childhood. So, here's the question. Could Jesus have gotten sick as a boy? I don't know why not. 
Now, there may be someone out there who is smarter than me and has more insight on this. And I certainly welcome someone to correct me on this. But we do know that Jesus got tired, right? We know that he experienced deep emotions. We know in deep anguish, he sweated blood. We know he was wounded. We know he bled profusely. And we know he died. These are things humans experience. So why couldn't he experience sickness according to his humanity? So look, Scripture is silent on this, and we cannot write a gospel claiming that Jesus did get sick as a child. But what we can do is we can take what we know and let it inform what we don't. Now, did Jesus have friends? Great question from your son. Did Jesus have friends? Well, again, why not? We know that Jesus was social, right? According to Scripture, it says he has siblings. Part of being human means interacting with neighbors, and part of being human, mean, especially like a human child, means playing with other children. So I think it would stand to reason that Jesus would have played with children his age. That seems perfectly reasonable to me. Now, the question about Jesus stopping a friend from sinning is actually a fascinating question. I mean, I hope you had a great conversation about this with your son, but it's a fascinating question. So obviously, since Scripture doesn't speak to this directly, we can't answer it definitively. But again, we can take what we know and speak it into what we don't in order to make a reasonable guess. So let's go for a minute to when Jesus was an adult, or we know a lot more about that time period. Did he stop his disciples from sinning? So think about Judas. Jesus could have stopped him, but he didn't. Or think about Peter, when Peter denied Jesus three times. Jesus didn't stop him. So that's what we know. If we speak it into what we don't know, it would seem more likely that Jesus would not have stopped a childhood friend from sinning, at least not in any sort of direct way. And if we take this into today, we can actually see that he doesn't stop us from sinning. And really, this starts to get into some, some really deep waters pretty fast, because how far would Jesus need to go to stop people from sinning? So would he need to stop, like for example, their hands from curling into a fist? Would he need to, say, redirect the bullet or the internet search? Would he need to stop people from saying bad words, right? So would he have to cause them to choke on their tongue so they couldn't say these bad words? But then, then we have to back it up and say, well, he'd have to actually go to the level of the thoughts because even thinking these words can be sinful. So you can see just how messy this is going to get really fast. So did Jesus stop his friends from sinning in that sort of way? Based on what we know, I would say not. Maybe he would have said, I don't want you to do that. That's not right. That doesn't honor God, that sort of thing. But based on what we know, I wouldn't anticipate him physically causing a friend to stop. But I want to add this, and we're going to get to this, I think, in our next question. But Jesus does have a plan to deal with sinning. He's actually going to empower us with his Holy Spirit and free us from sin and from its temptation. Now, that, that's really exciting. I won't expand upon this right now because we're going to do it in just a minute. But I'll, I'll just say that Jesus has an amazing plan to deal with this problem. But again, to Troy and to your son, well done on creating just an environment 
where your family is meditating on Jesus. Truly, I mean, I don't celebrate that you were sick, but I do celebrate the conversation that you were able to have. And, and for parents, notice, maybe this conversation was only three or four minutes. Don't sell short the significance of a conversation because it was short. It may have gone on for a while, but sometimes with kids, these questions just come out of nowhere. And Take those opportunities, even if they're in three or four minute snatches, to engage in conversation because you really want to encourage that sort of meditating on Jesus. Pastor Jonathan Connor is our guest. It's our series, Kids Have Questions. The next question, will we be tempted in the new earth? If you appreciate Issues Etc., our 24-7 music and talk stations, and our daily verse-by-verse Bible study, The Word of the Lord Endures Forever, please include a bequest in your will or trust for these worldwide media resources. A bequest allows you to receive an estate tax charitable deduction and reduces the tax burden on your family. Ensure your children, grandchildren, and great-grandchildren the opportunity to listen by including a bequest in your will or trust for Issues Etc., Lutheran Public Radio, and the word of the Lord endures forever. Psalm 144.1 Blessed be the Lord my rock, who trains my hands for war and my fingers for battle. Those serving in the armed forces want LCMS chaplains. We need courageous pastors to bring the gospel and sacraments to those protecting our nation, along with wise counsel and the peace found only in Christ Jesus. If you are between the age of 26 and 43 and have a heart for ministry in the armed forces, call 314-996-1337 or email lcmschaps at lcms.org. At Concordia Evangelical Lutheran Church in Wilmington, Delaware, our mission is to serve our community by sharing Christian hope. Jesus and all that he has done for us is the source of this hope. We take heart from Jesus' words, in the world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. If you're ever in the greater Philadelphia area, visit us in Wilmington, Delaware, or visit us online anytime at concordiade.com. Hello, this is Roy Askins with The Lutheran Witness. You've heard me talk about all the great content we publish in the print magazine of The Lutheran Witness, but I wanted to share with you that we have even more online. Visit our website, witness.lcms.org, where you'll hear even more content on worship this month in particular from Cantor Phil Magnus. We also have a series on literature right now going on and a series on church art with much more planned in the future. You can get all that for free on witness.lcms.org. The Lutheran Witness, helping you interpret the world from a Lutheran perspective. Your daily Lutheran Bible class. You're listening to Issues Etc. Thanks to the following congregations for standing with us by becoming an Issues Etc. congregational sponsor. Calvary Lutheran, Indianapolis, Indiana. Faith Lutheran, Rogue River, Oregon. Hope Lutheran, Hampton, Virginia. Lamb of God Lutheran, Papillion, Nebraska. Our Redeemer Lutheran, Cedar Falls, Iowa. Prince of Peace Lutheran, San Diego, California. Shepherd of the Valley Lutheran, Perrysburg, Ohio. St. Paul Lutheran, Chatfield, Minnesota. The Good Shepherd Lutheran, Inglewood, California. And Zion Lutheran, Chippewa Falls, Wisconsin. Find out how your confessional Lutheran church can support this worldwide outreach by including Issues Etc. in your mission or advertising budget. Just go to issuesetc.org, click Support Donate, and print a one-page flyer. When your congregation becomes an Issues Etc. sponsor, We'll publicize your church on the podcast, at our website, and in the Issues Etc. journal.
Welcome back. I'm Todd Wilkins. This is Issues Etc. It's 19-part series so far. Kids have questions, lots and lots of questions. Pastor Jonathan Connor is our guest. The next question, Jonathan, will we be able to be tempted in the new earth? Yeah, wow. Isn't that a great question? I mean, I've been asked this question several times. So let me first answer the child's question. And this is going to be a little bit shorter of a response to the child, because this particular child is also given to asking multiple questions in uh, their learning journal. So sometimes after answering about six or seven, I start to get a little briefer in my response. But we'll have time to to expand upon this because there's some really good stuff to talk about here. So to the child, great question. Here's how I've thought through this. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, that in the resurrection, our bodies will be empowered by the Holy Spirit. That means a lot of things, but at the very least, it seems as if we will be free from sin's temptation because we will be empowered by the Holy Spirit, and he is not tempted by sin. Okay, so that's where we end with the child. And to get a little bit deeper now, I'm going to take us to something Martin Chemnitz wrote. He addresses this in his book, The Two Natures in Christ. Now, just as a reminder for listeners who may not be, you know, as versed in some of these Reformation guys, Chemnitz is often referred to as the second Martin, second Martin Luther. And uh, he was a brilliant systematician. Uh, he was one of the formulators of the Formula of Concord. Super important guy. He's got some great, great stuff that well worth spending some time on. So just a great thinker. I want to read a few sections out of Chemnitz's The Two Natures in Christ. He's considering Paul's words in 1 Corinthians 15. That's what I made reference to briefly with the child. So this is in verses 42 to 44. I want to start with Paul's words, and then we'll get to Chemnitz. So Paul is speaking about our resurrected body. And wow, this is some of my favorite verses in Scripture are right here. Paul writes this. So it is with the resurrection of the dead. What is sown is perishable. What is raised is imperishable. It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. It is sown a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. And man, I love those words. I love those verses. Now, I'd love to take Paul's descriptors one at a time, each of them, because they're fantastic. But the last descriptor, it's that one that we want to zero in on right now. Okay, that phrase, a spiritual body. That's what Chemnitz is going to talk about, and I'll get to his his quote here in just a minute. But before I get there, I want to make sure we don't misunderstand Paul, because I think a lot of Americans just, they hear that word spiritual, and automatically they think, that means non-physical, and that is not at all what Paul means. So he's talking about what animates or what empowers the body. So you'd have to go back to 1 Corinthians chapter 2. And this is part of reading scripture in context. And this is really, really important, all right? You can't just grab a word and be like, well, that's what it means to us. It doesn't matter what it means to us. It didn't mean that to Paul. So what did Paul mean when he used that word? And he tells you what he means because he uses it earlier in his letter. So chapter two, he says, the natural person does not accept the things of the spirit of God for they are folly to him. And he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. So here's the comparison that Paul is making, right? natural, by that he means animated or empowered by the human spirit, and then spiritual, that means animated or empowered by the Holy Spirit. 
The natural person does not accept the things of God, and only the spiritual person accepts the things of God, all right? The whole person empowered by the Holy Spirit. That's what he's talking about. And I, just to reiterate this point, this is so important. I think this is a big corrective we need in the church today. Spiritual, when, when scriptures talk about being spiritual people, it's, it's not non-physical. So spiritual is Holy Spirit empowered. Holy Spirit empowered bodies. As far as scripture is concerned, spiritual people are not people who are obsessed with the non-physical. Spiritual people are people who are guided by the Spirit to live faithful lives in their bodily, physical vocations. Okay, back to 1 Corinthians 15. And before I get too far afield here, right? When Paul says that we'll be raised with a spiritual body, what he's saying is that we will have, we'll be raised bodily with an imperishable, powerful, glorified, and Holy Spirit-empowered body. So now Martin Chemnitz. I promised I'd get there. I'm finally there. Here's what he has to say. And uh, he has a long section on this. I, I've just abridged it for the sake of our listeners, but he's got great stuff there in his, his book, The Two Natures in Christ. He says, the resurrected bodies will be spiritual in the sense that what the soul is now to the body, the spirit will thenceforth be to both the body and the soul. And the body together with the soul will be wholly subject to the guidance and leadership of the Spirit. For in this life, those who have been reborn to God are led by the Spirit of God, but only in part and imperfectly. For with the mind, according to the inner man, Paul is led by the Spirit of God, and thus he has fellowship with the Spirit even in this life, but he still serves sin with this flesh. Then skipping forward a little bit, he says, but in the resurrection, both body and soul without any rebelliousness will be perfectly obedient to the leadership and governance of the spirit who uses both the body and the soul of the saints, according to his omnipotence, for whatever purposes he wishes. And the bodies and souls of the saints in glory will utilize the power of the Spirit for all actions and works which the Spirit wishes to perform. And they will possess conditions, faculties, and functions which are no longer psychic or of the minds only, but spiritual and perfect. Okay, end quote there for, for Chemnitz. And I know that was a thick quote, but it, this is truly fantastic. So let me try to just kind of bring this down into you know everyday understanding. Because here, here's what I know. I know this about you. I know this about you, Todd, about me, and about all of our listeners. I know that we all struggle with sin. And I know that all of us have been defeated by it time and time again. I'm there too. All right. Paul had the same experience, right? Romans 7. Paul says, the good I want to do, I don't do. The evil I don't want to do, that's what I keep on doing. And hear what he said, keep on doing. Because see, see, Paul knew defeat. He knew what it was like to wake up with remorse and guilt, just like us. So listeners, you know that feeling. You blew up at your wife again, right? You yelled at your kids again. You went to that website again. You emptied the bottle again, right? Defeat, despair, discouragement again. But here's what scripture is saying. Look at the promise. You are going to be raised with a Holy Spirit empowered body. So just imagine waking up tomorrow and not just not falling into that sin, 
but for the first time in your life, not being tempted by it. I think that's the most amazing thing. Now, some people say, but if we're guided by the Spirit, then we won't be free. That, that's totally wrong, okay? We'll be free because we'll be free from sin. So imagine a train. Let me make the illustration with the train. When it's on the tracks, it's free. It's when it leaves the tracks, that's when disaster strikes. So we're going to be firmly attached to the tracks, fully empowered by God's Holy Spirit, and sin won't tempt us. That is freedom. So on the new earth, we will not be tempted by sin. We will regard sin as God's Spirit regards it. We will see sin as God's Spirit sees it. And that means we will be free. And I think that is such an outstanding promise. I think this is one of those promises we need to lasso it, we need to pull it into the midst of our discouragement today. Sin won't always tempt us. One day, we're going to be completely free and alive and whole and full of the joy and happiness of God's Spirit. I think that is something to celebrate, and that is most certainly something to share. Will we recognize people we know in heaven? Love that question. I get asked that question, actually, not only by kids, but I get asked that question a lot by uh, older members, especially those who've had a loved one who has died. And if you've had that experience, new questions start to pop into your head about heaven and what happens and so forth. And I've been asked that question several, several times, so I'm really excited to answer this one. So first for the child, I say, I have every expectation that we will. Here's why. Scripture assumes the retention of identity. In fact, Paul writes in 2 Corinthians, this is in verse 14 of chapter 4, he who raised the Lord Jesus will raise us also with Jesus and bring us with you into his presence. Look at his words. He said, us and you. Do you see what Paul is assuming? He's assuming that they are going to know each other. He doesn't say God is going to raise generic, identity-less humans. He says God is going to raise you and us and bring us together so that we can be with him and each other forever. That is a wonderful promise. So that's where my answer to the child ends. Let me just expand upon this now. And just like the one we just finished promise-wise, I love this promise too. This is so encouraging. I think it builds nicely on what we just talked about from 1 Corinthians 15. So Paul fully expects here that he and Timothy are going to be in the presence of the Corinthians in the resurrection. So for us, and we hear the word the Corinthians, these are just kind of faceless designator of a group of people. But not for Paul. Paul had real flesh and blood people in his mind. And he fully expects that in the resurrection, he's going to know them. So I think it's pretty clear that the same applies to us. We're going to know our loved ones who have died and who will be raised in the faith. Now, it's a fascinating question to ask what our relationship with them is going to be like. How will husbands and wives relate, that sort of thing? How will siblings relate? How will parents and children relate? I suspect in many ways, we're probably going to have to wait until the resurrection to learn most of these. But on the question of whether we know our loved ones, the ones who have confessed Christ, 
I think scripture is resoundingly clear. Yes, absolutely. You will know them and you will be with them. And I think this is one of the great promises that we should emphasize in the church. So just look at what Paul has baked into this little verse in 2 Corinthians. Again, it's chapter 4, verse 14, if you want to look it up. So obviously, he's expecting a bodily resurrection. There's actually a lot more in there. One, he's assuming retained identities. Otherwise, like I said, the pronouns you and us wouldn't make any sense. So we're not going to be raised, like I said, as these generic humans. And our loved ones aren't going to be raised as generic humans either. They're going to be raised as themselves, all right? So Paul's assuming that. Number two, he's assuming a reunion because he says that God is going to bring us with you into his presence. So there's a witness coming. And I love this idea of a witness in the resurrection. We're going to be with each other and with Jesus. So a reunion is coming. Now, I know one of the other related questions, because I call these the whatabouts, right? I get a lot of whatabouts in confirmation. So you answer a question, and I have three hands go up, and they say, but what about this? But what about that? What about this? So the whatabout is here. What about those loved ones who aren't there, who aren't in the resurrection to eternal life? Well, we've talked a little bit about this before, but I want to repeat this for the sake of those who may not have heard. Will their absence cause us sadness? Possibly. But here's what I want us to understand. This is really important. We have to remember that the source of joy in heaven is not our loved ones. Now, look, it's certainly a perk. This is something we should emphasize. It is something we should celebrate. But the source of joy is not our loved ones. The source of joy, and we can never forget this, the source of joy is Jesus. Jesus is the source of joy. Now, I want to add one more thing here because I think this is important and because I actually get asked this question quite a bit too. God's not going to have to erase our memory of our loved one to make us happy. Here's the important thing. Happiness in heaven is not dependent upon our ignorance. So, God doesn't have to make us ignorant to make us happy. We're happy because we're with him. And further, it may be that the things we loved about our loved one who isn't in heaven, it may be that those things were but echoes and hints to delightful things about God. So that when we stand in the presence of the source of beauty and the source of joy and the source of mirth, that we're going to be totally filled by him without any lack, even if someone we love isn't there. Pastor Jonathan Connor is our guest pastor of Zion Lutheran Church in Manning, Iowa. It's part 19 of our series, Kids Have Questions. Question about fearing God is next. Here's an easy way for you to help us cast ChristNet on the internet. Subscribe, rate, and review the Issues Etc. podcast with your podcast provider. Type Issues Etc. in your podcast provider, hit the subscription button, and leave us a five-star review. This will make it easier for other podcast listeners to find Issues Etc. 
Help us reach more listeners in 2024. Subscribe, rate, and review Issues Etc. today. Where is God's mission? God's mission is everywhere. Yes, it's far away, but it's also very near. It's as near as your congregation and school, your neighborhood, your family and friends, even as near as your home. Wherever you are, God's mission is in that place. Through his mission, Christ is bringing forgiveness, life, and salvation to people everywhere, even here, right where you are. God's mission here. Learn more at lcms.org slash national mission. Declaring to you the whole counsel of God, you're listening to Issues Etc. The Evangelical Lutheran Church holds that it is God who raises up men to serve His Holy Bride through His office of the Holy Ministry. At Concordia University, Chicago, we prepare men to take the first step on the path by which God leads them to His pastoral office. Are you ready to take the step? I'm Dr. James Ambrose Lee, Chair of the Division of Theology at Concordia University, Chicago. Learn more about the pre-seminary program at CUC by visiting cuchicago.edu. cuchicago.edu. A blind sinner is carried to baptism administered by a pastor. Morning Chapel from Kramer Chapel. Live weekday mornings at 9 Central, 10 Eastern. 8 Mountain, and 7 Pacific at issuesetc.org. That was the epiphany event where our eyes were opened to see the amazing grace of God in the very face of Jesus. Jesus knows what it's like to be betrayed by your most trusted friends. He experienced injustice by church leaders, mobs, government officials. While enduring physical pain and a shameful execution, he suffered the mental anguish of being forsaken by his heavenly Father. And yet he prayed for all those who put him on the cross, including sinners like you and me. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. That's from the Issues Etc. Book of the Month for January, Unforgivable, How God's Forgiveness Transforms Our Lives. It's at our website, issuesetc.org, or call Concordia Publishing House and ask for Unforgivable, 1-800-325-3040, 1-800-325-3040. Pastor Jonathan Connor is our guest. It's our series, Kids Have Questions. Here's another question. We should fear God, but because he loves us, why would he ever try to hurt us? Yeah, another wonderful question from a child. I mean, just that underlying struggle with fear and being hurt. And so we want to tease out what the underlying concerns are here and bring a, a gentle corrective to what this word fear means. And then, because the idea of hurt here is really more in the terms of like a bully. That's kind of how they're looking at it. Why would God do a mean thing? That's kind of the idea. So we'll need to unpack some of this and offer some corrective because I can see how a child could get there. I can see how anybody could get there. But what's happening again is, like we talked about earlier, we're taking Scripture's words and we're importing some of our ideas and not really letting Scripture give us the, the full picture. So we're going to try to take a few minutes to let Scripture give us a fuller picture of this idea of fear. So to the child, wonderful question. There are so many ways to answer this. First, have your parents ever made you get an immunization? Did it hurt? Does that mean they don't love you? Of course not. Or have your parents ever made you do work that you didn't like? Does that mean they don't love you? 
No. Sometimes a greater good requires a certain amount of pain. So could God use pain to teach us? Second, could God use pain to call us to repentance? C.S. Lewis wrote that pain was God's megaphone that he used to get people's attention. So when we think through God and pain, it's important to keep a few things in our mind. Number one, God is good. We know this because of what he has done for us in Jesus. Two, God is eternal. That means we can't judge his actions by a time-limited standard. In other words, we can't conclude that one painful action is the only action of God. We have to place it in the context of God's eternity and allow that he is working for his good purposes through it. Three, God is wise. So just because we can't understand why God does what he does or allows what he allows, doesn't mean God doesn't govern the world by wisdom. It's just that it's a wisdom far above our own. But at the end of the day, we always come back to Jesus. And think about it. We call the day he died Good Friday. Isn't that surprising? Jesus underwent incredible pain and suffering on that day. Why would we call it good? Because we know the rest of the story, because we know what God was accomplishing there. So if we can call the darkest day in history good, is it possible God might know what he's doing in our sufferings and that he isn't merely hurting us to be mean? So back to fear. We're not fearing that God is going to hurt us like a bully hurts a smaller kid in school. We fear him because he is the greatest being in existence. He has the authority to save or to damn. He is the burning purity of perfection, the blazing glory of righteousness, and we are sinners. He is worthy of fear not because he's evil, but precisely because he's so good. Okay, that's where my answer to the child ends. We need some time to unpack this because I think this is a struggle for so many of us. We just get our words jumbled up, what we mean by these words and what scripture means by these words. And we need to get a little bit fuller perspective on who God is and what he says about himself in scripture. And I'll just say up front, there's way more to this sort of question that we have time to sort out here. You could do a whole series just on this and you know that all too well, Todd. So I just want to highlight just a couple things here. Okay, number one, we don't fear God like a victim fears a bully. That's really important. Now, yes, look, God may bring suffering into our lives. And yes, I did say, God may do this. I know we want to say things like God might allow or Satan brings suffering. And those statements, they actually can be equally true. But God himself says to Moses in Exodus chapter four, who has made man's mouth? Who makes him mute? or deaf, or seeing, or blind? Is it not I, the Lord? And I'm pretty sure we've all heard of Job. Remember who suggested Job to Satan? It was God. And then you have Jeremiah and Lamentations chapter 3 asking this question. Is it not from the mouth of the Most High that good and bad come? That's in the Bible. Right? And Amos, he asks this in Amos chapter 3. Does disaster come to a city unless the Lord has done it? 
And the Lord himself says in Isaiah 45, I form light and I create darkness. I make well-being and create calamity. I am the Lord who does all these things. So what I'm trying to help us appreciate here right now, this may be a struggle for us, but we we spend a lot of time, we expend a lot of energy trying to get God off the hook for things that we perceive as evil. But it doesn't seem like God is too interested in getting himself off the hook. So what do we do? Well, there are a couple of responses I highlighted with the child that I, I want to reiterate here. These are really important. First, we consider God as God. In other words, we take the totality of the picture that Scripture gives us for God, and we hold them in tension. Okay, this is what Lutherans do so well. We are comfortable with tension. So Scripture confesses that God is good and powerful, wise, and eternal. Now, obviously, Scripture says a lot more about God, but for our purposes, these four are enough for now. And it's really important then, as we consider these, we're going to keep these four in tension. So when we experience suffering, and we're trying to reconcile that with the goodness of God, we call to mind that God is also wise and eternal. So this is important. We don't judge God by our time-limited perspective. We don't judge God by our horizon. Okay, we allow his actions to stand, this is important, in eternity. And from that perspective, we can see differently. So when we bring the confession of his wisdom to bear, then we get an even better perspective. Now, I've compared God's wisdom before to the constellations in the night sky, right? We love to play dot to dot with a handful of stars to form constellations, right? The Big Dipper, you know, Orion, Pegasus, and so forth. So we try to reduce God to a handful of dots in our lives, and we try to make him fit in our dots. But here's the question I want to ask for our listeners. What if God doesn't look at the night sky and see dozens of little constellations? What if God looks at the starry heavens and he sees one? Now, what I'm saying is, what if he knows how to connect every star in the heavens into one grand dot to dot? So, what if it's that our lives don't fit into one of our simple constellation dot to dots, but in God's grand constellation? What if we can't reduce God's working down into our little dot to dots? What if we need to trust that he knows how all the dots connect? See, that's what I'm talking about with God's wisdom. So God is good, powerful, eternal, and wise. And that is one of the reasons we fear him. Again, not as a victim fears a bully, but as a creature fears his creator. But I want to come back to the point I made with the child. At the end of the day, and this is critical, we always come back to Jesus. We might not know why God brings what he brings into our life. We might struggle to understand how God could be at work in the midst of our pain. But we know why we call the day that Jesus died good. Because from the perspective of the resurrection, we can see what God was up to. 
So we bring that perspective-changing reality into our hurts and into our pain, and that helps us to trust that God is good. Okay, so God is powerful, God is eternal, and God is wise, God is good. We can trust him. And we are right then to fear him. And here's the thing, and I, I wish I had more time to think about this, and, and maybe uh, some of my theological friends out there, maybe you've given some more thought to this. I certainly would love your thoughts on this. But I'm just thinking out loud for a minute. I, I'm not sure that this fear will completely evaporate in the resurrection. But I don't want people to misunderstand me when I say that. Let me qualify what I'm saying. I'm speaking here of all the positive reasons we fear God. These positive reasons, I don't think they're going to disappear in the resurrection. And I actually think we have a little bit of a hint of this in Revelation chapter 19. So John records a voice calling from the throne in heaven. And this voice is calling to all the saints in heaven and on earth. And here's what he says. And from the throne came a voice saying, Praise our God, all you his servants, you who fear him, small and great. I think that's very suggestive. Now, I know it's not from the perspective of the resurrection, but it sure seems to be the voices referring to the saints in heaven who've been freed from sin and the saints on earth who are still struggling with sin. It calls all of them as those who fear the Lord. So my point is that this voice seems to have a positive portrayal of the fear of the Lord. So fearing the Lord is a positive thing. I think, well, I know there's a lot more to say on this. Certainly we could go to the wisdom literature of scripture and see how it portrays the fear of the Lord in a positive light. But that's probably enough for now. The short of it is this, and I think it's important we take this home. We're not fearing a bully. We are fearing the good, powerful, eternal, and wise God. Pastor Jonathan Connor is pastor of Zion Lutheran Church in Manning, Iowa. Jonathan, thank you very much. Todd, thanks for having me. Friday on Issues Etc., we'll discuss the International House of Prayer and Mike Bickle with Chris Rosebro, and we'll talk with Pastor Hans Feeney about defining evangelical. I'm Todd Wilkin. Thanks for listening. Listen weekday afternoons to Pastor Todd Wilkin and guests on Issues Etc. Issues Etc. is a listener-supported program. Your financial support is vital for the continuation and expansion of this worldwide outreach. Our mailing address, Issues Etc., P.O. Box 83, Collinsville, Illinois, 62234. Box 83, Collinsville, Illinois, 62234. You can also donate at our website, issuesetc.org. Issues Etc., is a production of LPR, Lutheran Public Radio. The Third Commandment teaches us to remember the Sabbath day by keeping it holy. We do this when we hold God's Word sacred and gladly hear and learn it. Jesus invites the weak and heavy laden to rest in Him, our true rest, because His yoke is easy and His burden is light. This weekend, rest in Jesus as you hear His Word and receive His gifts. If you are in Southern Illinois... You're invited to join Trinity Lutheran Church in Milstadt to rest in the grace of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Learn more at trinitymilstadt.org. I am beautiful because I am fearfully and wonderfully made. I am accepted because I'm a part of His family through Jesus' shed blood.
Unity Lutheran School in East St. Louis, Illinois, shines the light of Christ in one of the most impoverished cities in America. Learn how to support their mission work at unityesl.org. Unityesl.org. Today, with the help of 